Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. Hey y'all, welcome back. This is uh, going to be part two of the Arthur Ream episode. This one is going to focus on um, more on the 2018 raid at the abandoned warehouse, um, why it happened, and what the police feel is their takeaway from that from that day. So just to recap quickly, um, for those, I'm sure if you're listening to part two, you probably already listened to part one, but just in case you did not, um, Arthur Ream is serving a life sentence for the murder of 13 year old Cindy Zarzicki in 1986. However, he was not convicted until, uh, 2008, and then uh, he is also a uh, repeat offender of multiple, multiple, multiple rapes of girls under the age of 18. Most of them between like the 12 and 15 year old range, which is sickening beyond belief. Um, Arthur Reem was married four times every divorce ended um with or every marriage ended in divorce with the wives claiming physical abuse um and the other thing that I wanted to remind you of is that he has a long-standing tradition of blaming others for his crimes um including blaming his son uh, or not necessarily blaming his son. He's claiming that he claims that Cindy Zarzicki's death was an accident. Um, but he does tell police that he and and he's put this in writing that he was not present when Cindy passed away, that his son Scott was and that Scott helped him bury her body. But as I told you in part one, at the time of Cindy's death and burial, Scott was actually out of town. So he had nothing to do with uh, Cindy's murder. So um, we're going to get right into part two now. And uh, here we go. Um, the 2018 raid of the warehouse came after Arthur Reed, Reem, sorry, told multiple inmates. Now, I have seen that these were um, informants. I don't know if they became informants after the fact or how that really works. I have seen the word informant mentioned, so I'm just going to state that fact. But um, he told multiple fellow inmates, inmates that he has killed between four and to six other girls outside of Cindy Zarzicki. Right in um, at this point, we are only focusing on five, but there could potentially be even more. 
Um, officials, officials interviewed these inmates. They reviewed Reem's FBI profile and had him take a polygraph to which he failed. Now, if you've listened to um, my other episodes, you know how I feel about polygraphs. They're a bunch of BS, honestly. Um, but I feel that they're BS when they're taken in the wrong context. If you give somebody a polygraph right after a traumatic event, like we've seen in, like we saw in the Bianca Jones case, um, where her dad was given a polygraph literally hours after he was carjacked and his daughter was taken, allegedly. Um, you know, yeah, you're going to have issues with that. Even with a uh, case number one that we did, Dewan Sims, his mother, Dewana Sims, was giving a polygraph literally within hours of her son going missing. Now, we all know how I feel about that case and his mother's involvement. But again, that's a big issue. If you if you give somebody a polygraph when they're under a lot of stress, it, you're not going to get an accurate result. Now, in this particular instance, Arthur Reed was in prison. He wasn't under any in, undue stress. They were just asking him questions and he failed. I think that that, while, yes, polygraphs are not admissible in a court of law, I think that that does actually show quite a bit, you know, of, um, I honestly believe that he failed because he was lying. I, I don't see, you're, you know, you've been in prison all this time, 10 years or whatnot, and uh, what do you have to lose? by lying at that point. So, yes, he failed this polygraph. Um, they also begin to review Cindy Zarzicki's case file. Um, a f I really questioned myself whether or not to say make this last state this next statement because I do not want to throw anybody under the bus. Um, however, I did watched an interview from um, the former East Point detective who spent in 2008 countless hours with Arthur Ream to the point where he felt very confident in stating that he believed that there was a good chance that Arthur Ream was responsible for Kimberly King's disappearance. And we're going to talk about Kim in a minute, but um, in 2008, when they got the conviction, he actually, Kim actually went missing from Warren. Now, Warren and East Point, if you're not familiar with the area, are city, cities literally side by side. You cross the street, you're, you go from Warren to East Point. Well, this detective at the time shared his thoughts in 2008 with the Warren Police Department. He states that because of the 2008 economy, when the economy was like, pardon my language, to hell in a handbasket, we all remember what 2008 was like. Um, because it was in such a poor state, the Warren PD did not have the funds or the manpower to properly investigate. Now, a lot of people, that could potentially anger a lot of people. I honestly was extremely angry when I watched this interview and I wrote these words right after I watched the interview and then I toyed with it 
for a couple of, for probably about two weeks about whether or not that I was going to share this information because that's, that's 10 years that um, Kimberly King's family, um, you know, I could have had some sort of hope, I guess. But at the same time, I, I spent some time reflecting and thinking about that time. And um, 2008, like I said, it was literally horrendous. You know, so many police departments were short-staffed due to um, just not having the funds to pay their, their employees. So I I get it. I really do. I'm sure that there were plenty of other cases that, that had to take precedence. And um, honestly, he was in prison at that point. So it's not like he was going to hurt anybody else. I think if he was out in the in the population, it would be different. But I have to say that I'm glad in 2018 something was done, but I can't necessarily fault the Warren PD for, um, for waiting on that. And that comes from a Warren resident myself. I, I, like I said, I really toyed with that because I didn't want to say anything negative about them, but I do understand you know, but I, I did feel that it was necessary to bring up the fact that the East Point detectives did feel that there was a strong possibility that Kimberly King's case was related to Arthur Ream when the initial investigation in 2008 was happening. So, um, so let's get back to the warehouse. Okay, the warehouse, again, as I mentioned in part one, used to be a carpet warehouse that uh, Arthur Ream ran. Like I said, I don't know if he owned it or if he just ran it, but he was extremely involved in this carpet warehouse. And it was located in South Warren um, off of Shaner Road um, near Frazo. Okay, that's um, like nine and a, no, ten and a half mile. So since the, the warehouse had been virtually, virtually, sorry, can't talk, untouched since he went to prison in 1998, like literally untouched they were able to go through his records that he left there like boxes he had boxes of records they were able to tear down paneling remove carpeting they were able to it was like having a crime scene essentially frozen in time and they removed quite a bit there there's multiple if you like search youtube for arthur ream in the warehouse you can see them um, removing like boxes and, and paper bags, the sealed paper evidence bags from the warehouse. And there was a lot. So they actually took quite a bit from the scene. And the evidence that was removed led them to, um, to believe, okay, that there were um, other girls buried at the location uh, where Cindy Zarzicki was buried. Okay, um, police believe that all of the girls, and, and at the time, um, I'm not even sure. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I have this next statement correct. At the time of the raid, uh, police Warren Police Commissioner William Dwyer told Local 4, Click on Detroit, they, he told just about all of the stations that were present 
that the main focus of the raid was actually Kimberly King. Uh, in fact, the search warrant that was issued was specifically to look for evidence connected with King's case. And I think that that's important. I'm sure it had a lot to do with the fact that the original evidence did lead police to believe that there was a good chance that Arthur Reem was involved in Kim's disappearance. And now let's remember, um, Cindy Zarzicki went disappeared from East Point uh, at 13 years old. Kim King went dis disappeared from Warren at 12 years old. Both of the locations of their disappearances were technically Nine Mile Road. So there's, and as I mentioned, the warehouse was at 10 and a half miles. So the, I call it like the triangle, It it's all very connected and very close. And I, I definitely, there's not a doubt in my mind that this man had something to do with at least Kim's disappearance. But um, the police do believe that all of the girls, with the exception of Cindy Zarzicki, were targeted at random and had no connection to each other. As we learned in part one, uh, Cindy Zarzicki was dating Scott, Scott Rehm, who is Art Rehm's son. So he obviously did know her. He made that connection with her. And uh, so we do know that there was a connection there. And as, as I mentioned before, the FBI was also involved in the raid. So the, the police did call them in on the raid on the warehouse. Now, um, at the time in 2018, um, officials did state that they found multiple items that they believe will help them solve a more than 30-year-old murder case or 30-year-old case. Um, they did not specifically state that it was Kim King's case or one of the other four missing girls. So we really do not know what was found, but uh, they do state that there was evidence found. As I said, Kim King's case is the was the catalyst for the search warrant, but regarding the evidence, they've never stated the which 30-year-old case they were talking to. Or, potentially, it could be all five of them. Uh, let's see here. As I mentioned, that the... Uh, Commissioner Dwyer told uh, Local 4 that it's amazing to us that they have been untouched, meaning the warehouse, the evidence, that the particular location hasn't been used since he went to prison, and we are finding what we believe to be very valuable valuable documents that will assist us in our ongoing investigation that they will eventually meaning the evidence that they will eventually hopefully bring closure to the Kimberly King family and other victims we have identified in the past. So he also stated that there is probable cause to believe that this the location off 23 Mile and North Avenue is a grave site. No question about it. Kimberly King and other young female victims were murdered and buried here. Now, this statement I found to be really interesting because it's very matter of fact. As I mentioned to you in part one, this is a 
acre property. It's extremely large. And honestly, like I always knew that the property they were looking for was in Northern Macomb County. I guess I really, when this went down in 2018, I guess I didn't really pay attention to the exact location, but it's kind of ironic because when I took my son to take his driver's test, it was actually like seconds away from this property. And there is a lot of open property in that area. There's very few buildings. Um, and obviously, it is starting to build up a little bit, but it's very rural and there's a lot of open space. So that's a lot of area to search. I'm not sure if like cadaver dogs were ever used in the search, but they obviously found something because for him to say there is, and I'm gonna, I'll read it again. Like I said, this is a quote from Commissioner Dwyer. There is probable cause to believe this is a grave site. No question about it. Kimberly King and other young female victims were murdered and buried here. So that tells me that they found some pretty detailed damning evidence against Arthur Reem. Um, again, unfortunately, you're dealing with a property that sits on 24 acres of land and it truly is a needle in a haystack. At the time of the search, Kimberly King's sister, Connie, told ABC News, police are very confident that they will find something, so I'm trying to hold on to that hope. Now, I believe it was seven days that they held the search on the property, and they ended up calling it off because they did not find the girls' bodies. It's, uh, it's extremely disheartening. Because I'm sure, I mean, I, re, I do remember watching the, um, the coverage and seeing so many of the victims' families standing there and just wanting answers. And that's all they want. They just want to bring their loved ones home. And that was something that, you know, we had talked about during the Kyle Mosier case. You know, um, I actually just spoke to Kyle's mom the other day. She had commented on something and I, I told her flat out, I said... The comment that she made um, about her grandkids, and I told her, I said, you know, my parents, they both passed away in 2019, and we had both of them cremated, and we had them put in a box together, and they are in our family room, and, you know, we didn't, we opted not to, you know, to bury them, but they're there, you know, they're with us, and it allows you to have... Um, some type of closure. And like Michelle Fowler had said about her son, Kyle, all she wants is to give her grandchildren a place to grieve their father. She just wants her, her son back. And uh, that I feel for these families is extremely important. They just want their loved one back. They just want their daughter or their sister or their friend. You know, they want a place to be able to grieve. And I think it's extremely difficult um, to, to just not know. In fact, I know it's extremely difficult. It's just extremely difficult to just not flat out know. And you just want that answer. Unfortunately, um, as I said, they had to cut the search and 
unfortunately, five years later, we're still waiting for them to find the girls. I did reach out to um, Commissioner Dwyer via email. Um, I have not heard back from him. I reached out to him and I explained to him that I understand that this is an ongoing investigation still and that he cannot tell me anything, but I did ask him if another search is planned for the future because I, you know, I think it's important that we continue to look. So they have released since those initial press conferences in 2018, they have since released the names of the other four potential victims, including Kimberly King. So at this point, what we're going to do is we are going to go through the list of all five girls uh, and we are going to tell you the circumstances around their disappearance. So when it comes to the property, again, it's in northern Macomb County at 23 Mile and North Avenue. We are looking for the bodies of the following missing teenagers. 13-year-old Cynthia Kuhn, last seen January 19, 1970 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Her date of birth is March 24, 1956, and at this time... Uh, today, she would be 67 years old. 16-year-old Nadine O'Dell, last seen August 16, 1974, in Inkster, Michigan. Her date of birth, March 13, 1958, and today she would be 65. 12-year-old Kimberly King, last seen September 16, 1979, in Warren, Michigan. Her date of birth, October 21st, 1966. Today, she would be 56. 15-year-old uh, Kimberly Laro, last seen June 8th, 1981 in Canton, Michigan. Date of birth, December 17th, 1965. Today, she would be 57. And 17-year-old Kelly Brownlee, Last seen May 20th, 1982 in Novi, Michigan. Date of birth, November 5th, 1964. And today, would be she would be 58. Um, all of these cases are prior to the 1986 disappearance of 13-year-old Kimberly, I'm sorry, Cynthia Zarzicki on April 19th, 1986 in East Point. So now we're going to go through each one and I will tell you the circumstances around their disappearance. Um, this first one um, was really tough. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about this one. I know police have stated in the past that they think that there's a strong possibility that Cindy Kuhn was one of Art Ring's victims. However, um, some of the details of things that happened after her disappearance are a little odd and we'll talk about that in a second so 13 year old cynthia cindy coon uh, was last seen monday january 19th 1970 walking down the 1400 block of warrington in washtenaw county michigan um, this is just west of ann arbor cindy was a very studious child her father being a doctor and her mother a homemaker at the time of her disappearance, she was attending Forsyth Junior High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
She did not like riding the bus, so she chose to walk the one mile each way to school every day. Uh, this is something she literally did day in and day out. Rain, snow, wind, she did not care. She, she walked every day. On the morning of the 19th, she woke up and got ready for school, just like every day. And she left her house at approximately 7.30 a.m., just as she did every day. Uh, she left her house taking the same route, but she never made it to school. Now, in 1970, this is a big difference from today, okay? If my kid was not in school, now, I remember, even in high school um, with Adam, uh, school started at 714. If he was, like, not in class by, like, maybe 720, I was getting a text or a phone call from the school. In 1970, schools were not required to notify parents when their child was absent and the parent hadn't called them in, which I guess I get because this wasn't, I don't think, I don't, I, I really don't know, like was truancy like a big issue back then like it is now? I'm really not sure, but yeah, it was not required for schools to call. Um, her friends and her teachers were extremely concerned about her not being in school because Cindy was the type of kid to just not miss school. And her, like her teachers actually had planned on like talking to her about it the next day, like, you know, hey, what happened? Because it was just so completely unlike her. She has no history of running away whatsoever. And Missing school without her parents calling her in was literally unheard of for Cindy. She was just, she was very studious. She was on the right track. This was very out of the ordinary. Again, Cindy's parents did not know all day that she did not show up at school because she they were not notified. When she did not come home after school, her parents became worried again because this was extremely unlike her. Remember, there's no cell phones in 1970. Technology, honestly, has just made such a big difference. I know there's a lot of bad things about technology, but wow. I mean, just to be able to track your kid. I know that sounds horrible, but I do. Mine's 18. I still track them. Um, but uh, her parents became extremely concerned, and they called the police to report her missing. Uh, it's not known what kind of searches were done for Cindy at the time of her disappearance. I have looked everywhere for more information about Cindy Coon. And honestly, this, there's such little information out there. It's insane. Um, on Now, remember, she disappeared on the 19th of March. Correct. Just let me double check. The 19th. Of, no, I'm sorry. The 19th of January. Okay, so three months later, on April 1st, oh, now this is crazy, and this is where I find things to be a little bit different compared to some of the other cases. On April 1st, Cindy's parents claim that Cindy called them twice in a two-hour window. And actually, they say they can't remember if it's the first or the second, which right there in itself I found that to be a little strange because I would think if my kid who was missing for three months um, called me, I'm going to know the date. Okay. I do find it interesting that it potentially could have been April 1st, which was April Fool's Day. 
Just saying, I thought that was a little odd. But anyway, so her parents claim that Cindy called them twice within a two-hour window. They say that she told them she did not where, know where she was, but um, some officials do believe that the calls came from the city of Detroit. I don't know how they know that information. I saw that reported a few times. I'm not sure if they were even able to like track phone calls back then with landlines. I really don't know, but I have seen multiple reports that officials believe the calls came from Detroit. So obviously the calls, they got calls, but whether or not it was really Cindy, I think as a parent, um, if you're a child, if you're a little girl, I mean, gosh, she's just a, she's just a baby, 13 years old, you know, if you're, if your 13 year old is missing and all of a sudden three months later, you get a phone call from them. I think it's a very strong possibility that your mind can kind of play tricks on you. And maybe it wasn't Cindy that called and they just really wanted it to be her. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so they say that she called. And then on May 5th, which is a little over a month later, her parents claimed to receive another call. But this one was more of like a ransom extortion call. It was not from Cindy. Um, it was from somebody else. We don't know who. None of the details of the call have ever been made public. So we don't know what was said. We don't know how if money was requested or we don't know what the terms were. We just know that it was an extortion type ransom call and um, they never called again, which, as I said, that's kind of strange, right? I mean, if you're going to make a ransom call four months after somebody went missing, don't you think that they would have, like, called again to, I, I don't know. To me, that just seemed kind of odd. So none of the other girls had calls after the fact. So that's why I find that Cindy Coon's case is a little bit different. But at the same time, I do see the potential there because there's no way to say that it was actually Cindy on the phone. And especially with the April 1st timeline, I could see it being a prank. A horrible, horrible prank to give this family hope. But I can see a potential prank there. Um, especially considering that I don't think that Cindy Zarzicki was alive for very long after um, she was taken by Art Ream. I can't see him holding her. You know, there's just a lot of a lot of iffiness about this case. So, um, as I said, out of all the cases that we'll cover today, Cindy Kuhn was the only one reported to have made contact after her disappearance. Whether or not it was accurate, I don't know. So apparent, unfortunately, at this point, Cindy's case went cold with no further communication from Cindy and no evidence the police had nothing to go on. It was literally like she just vanished. Um, at the time of her disappearance, Cindy Kuhn was five foot four and weighed 110 pounds. She had shoulder length brown hair and brown eyes. She wore a tan coat, black boots, and multicolored scarf and a hat. And she also had a multicolored book bag. At the time of Cindy's disappearance in 1970, Arthur Ream was approximately 20 years old. And I'm going to be giving you his age with every case um, because I do think it's relative. 
you can you can really see the timeline there. The next one um, is 16 year old Nadine Jean Odell. Now, uh, Nadine was last seen on Friday, August 16th in 1974 in Inkster, Michigan. She left her home um, around 930 because she was going to be walking to her boyfriend's house. Um, she was last seen walking down John Daly Road in Inkster to her boyfriend's house in Taylor. Now, um, Inkster and Taylor, they are a good distance apart. Um, she was going to her boyfriend's house to babysit his younger siblings, and he was going to meet her halfway. I have not seen anything about how he was meeting her. If he was walking to her halfway and then going to walk her back, or if he was driving. So I think it would make more sense if he was driving like she was walking halfway and then he was going to meet her and pick her up because it Taylor and um, Inkster, I would say it's a good maybe five miles apart. I'm not positive, but it's, it's a good distance. So when he arrived, when her boyfriend arrived to the meeting point, she wasn't there and she never showed. So he then went back to Nadine's house to find out where she was. And everybody was like, wait a minute, she's coming to meet you. So at that point, she had just like completely vanished. Like she was walking down the road one minute and the next minute she was gone. At the time of her disappearance, she was five foot one and weighed around 105 pounds. She was literally just tiny for a 16 year old. Um, and that's the other thing as well that you need to consider is the fact that um, Arthur Harim definitely had something for like that, I don't want to call them preteens, but that 12, 13 year old range. And even though Nadine was 16, she was very small. Uh, she had long strawberry blonde hair and green eyes. She was last seen wearing faded baggy blue jeans and a white t-shirt. Uh, she also wore her boyfriend's 1976 class ring around her neck on a chain the, the ring was white gold with a blue stone and a ram, ram's head on it. Um, and it also said 1976 or, or just 76. I haven't, um, there's both have been listed, whether it's, um, I know my class ring, I believe, said 1996 on it. So it could have been 1976 or just the 76. I'm not sure. Uh, during the 2018 search of the property, in um, northern Macomb County. Uh, one of the TV stations, I believe it was Local 4, interviewed Nadine's sister, Brenda. Um, and she bears a striking resemblance to her sister. And you can tell that it was, like, not lost on her. Like, she knew how much she looked like her sister. And uh, Brenda was only nine when Nadine went missing. And that's a that's a pretty big age gap. She literally she idolized her sister, and she said, um, "I this is what this is what she had to say." She said, "I know she is dead. Oh, I know she is dead. Nadine wouldn't stay away. She would have come home to my mom," and uh, that that really got me. Um, that's just heartbreaking. And at one point, I, I tried to go back and find this interview that I found, and I don't want to misquote her, but it was just so poignant 
because um, I think a lot of people have told her through her life how much she looks like her sister. And uh, she she made a statement along the lines of, you know, if Art Reem is the one uh, who killed her sister, she wants to meet him face to face because she wants him to look at her face because she looks so much like her sister and she wants him to see that face staring back at him. And uh, just, oh, that she's so strong. Um, she's held, she's, she's held on to her sister for such a long time. And you can tell that her sister's disappearance has greatly affected her, like extremely. I mean, you're talking, this is like, she disappeared in 74. Heck, I was born in 73. I'm 45. So, I mean, gosh, this is like a, almost 50 years old. I mean, come on. She needs closure. These All these girls need closure. Uh, at the time of Nadine's disappearance in 1974, Arthur Ream uh, would have been about 24 years old. Okay. Now, I want to I want to take a quick quick side check right here because I want you to look at this timeline. Now, we're, we're going to we're going to buzz back to part 1 really quick. If you remember in 1975 when Reem picked up that hitchhiker and raped her and went to prison and did not get out till 1978. So let's look at that again because the largest gap between the abduction of these girls was between Nadine and Kim King. Nadine disappeared in 1974. Kim King disappeared in 1979. It just so happened that in 1975, Art Ream goes to jail and gets out in 1978. Who's to say that the um, unknown, because we they never released the girl's name, the 1975 hitchhiker, um, who's to say that she was not another, you know, she, she was a victim of his, but you know, he did not kill her. So I did find that really, really interesting. Um, uh, the timeline of all of this is probably to me like one of the most gripping, grippling facts. And when I, when I realized that, uh, that that gap between Nadine and Kim King was when he was in prison. Like, just like, it. it's like right there in your face, you know? It's like, how can you not look at that? Um, so, yeah, oh, that, that gets me. Every time I read that, it's just like, wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. It makes you wonder that if we had the technology that we have today and we had the ability to see all this stuff, um, what would we have seen at the time? You know, somebody asked me uh, the other day about my research and what I do. And I say, I, I literally like take every article that I can find and every interview that I can find and I compile all of the information and I, I put it together and that's what I'm trying to put out because the one interview or one article may have this information and somebody else is going to have that information, but 
the best thing is to put it all in in one place. And as I did that, especially with this case, and you compile everything together, and it's like, it's the pieces of this puzzle that just keep kind of coming together. And it just, it's mind-blowing. Like, totally, totally mind-blowing to me. So now we are moving on to 12-year-old Kimberly Alice King. She was last seen Sunday, September 16th in 1979 in Warren, Michigan. On Saturday the 15th, um, Kim was actually living with her grandparents. She, I guess there was some issues. Um, their mother did not have custody. Uh, their father, there's Kim and her two older sisters who are considerably older than her. Her oldest sister was married and moved away. And then she had um, a teenage sister who was older. And she lived with, the Kim and her older sister lived with their father. However, her father decided to move further north. I believe it was maybe to Pontiac or Waterford or something. But Kim did not want to go. She had established friends in her neighborhood. She liked her school. She did not want to move. So her grandparents actually agreed to allow her to live with them so that she could stay in, in her school and be with her friends, which so awesome of them to do that. Um, so like I said, she'd been living with her grandparents and she made arrangements to stay at her friend's house and she lived across the street. And this was like her, you know, her BFF. They did this often. Um, but... This is what I found out. This is something she would commonly do, but it was not always to just hang out. It was so she could sneak out. Apparently, um, Kim was, even though she was 12, and I don't know if this had something to do with the fact that her sisters were older, she wanted to be older. She wanted to appear older. And she loved hanging out with a more older crowd. And a lot of that crowd actually hung out on Gratiot Avenue. Um, if you're not familiar with Gratiot, it is a, I believe, an eight-lane road. It, it's a very large road. Um, it has a very wide median, and you have to uh, do the Michigan lefts to turn around. I mean, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very big road. Um, but a lot of people especially back then, they would cruise Gratiot in their cars and the teenagers would drink. It was definitely a place to hang out on the weekends. And Kim was no stranger to this. She loved hanging out there and, and acting like she was older than she was. And it was not that far from her house. And again, back in the 70s, it was not uncommon for kids to hitchhike there. Um, she also liked to hang out at a uh, local White Castle that was only a few miles from her house. And there was also an arcade a few miles in the other direction from her house. So there were a few places that she could have snuck out to go to. Um, as I said, she was only 12, but she loved to act a lot older. And she was honestly probably trying to grow up a little too early. Um, so at 11 p.m. the night of that Saturday night, 
she actually called her sister from a payphone. And she told them that her grandparents lived on Dodge Street, which is a few blocks south of Nine Mile Road. And it was near Hoover Road. And this one sticks with me because I can see, she said she was calling from a payphone at the corner of Nine Mile and Hoover. I can actually see that corner from my office. Like if I were to look out the window right now, I could see that corner. So this literally happened like right here. Now her sister has um, said she doesn't really believe that Kim was calling from that location. And I will tell you why in a hot second. But um, like I said, Kim told her sister that uh, she was calling from this payphone. Her sister told her it was not safe. Now, this is her older sister. Now, she said it was not safe for her to be out that late at night by herself and she needed to go back to the house. As every big sister would tell their little 12-year-old sister, get back in there, okay? Um, her sister, Kathy, told the podcast already gone in 2017. So this was before the search um, in 2018. But so she told the already gone podcast in 2017 that she did not believe that her six, her sister was actually at that location on Nine Mile and Hoover. She believes that she was at the White Castle Apparently, one of her friends said he saw Kim and gave her a ride to the White Castle and he left her there. He said he was not aware that she was only 12 and never would have left her alone if he'd known. Um, but honestly, to my knowledge, outside of what Kathy told the Already Gone podcast, I have not been able to confirm that. Again, I do not like reporting things that I can't confirm with multiple sources, but this was a family member that made the statement. So that's why I'm acknowledging it uh the next day sunday uh september 16th the morning came and went and kim had not come home yet so her grandparents called across the street and that's when they found out that kim wasn't there uh the family the friend's parents believed that she had gone home at some point and you know they didn't even realize that she was missing um a missing a missing report was filed um Kim was initially considered a runaway. And and I don't know if I mentioned this uh, regarding the Cindy Coon case, but at one point, Cindy was actually considered a runaway in the very beginning. Um, while Kim did like to sneak out, she always came back. And I think that that's a very important, uh, a very important statement. There was literally no reason that she would have run away. Uh, Reem at that point was living in Warren, not far from where Kim vanished. I believe he was actually living possibly in the carpet warehouse at that time. I'm not sure, but he was regardless, very close to the location she was at. Um, I'm thinking that Kim was probably just seen as an easy target if in case Arthur Reem did take her. Um, she was walking alone at 11 p.m., you know, I, I definitely think it was a victim of opportunity. Um, at the time of Kimberly's disappearance in 1979, Arthur Ream would have been 28 years old. 
The next one we have is 15-year-old Kimberly Marie Laro. I, I, the fact that there's two Cindy's and two Kim's, mind-blowing. That must, I don't know if that was like just a really popular name at that time, but I did find that pretty interesting. So, um, yes, 15-year-old Kimberly Marie Laro was last seen June 8th in 1981 in Canton, Michigan. Kimberly had just recently moved to Canton up until a week before she disappeared. She was actually living with her father in Dundee, Michigan, which is about 40 minutes away from Canton. The afternoon of June 8th, she went to an ice cream parlor near Sheldon Road and Ann Arbor Road in Canton to visit her best friend who worked there. Now, Kim was living, she moved in with her mom, so... She she knew the area. Her mom lived there. Um, she was just moving in with her mom full time. So it's that's why, you know, she had friends in the area. So she went to visit um, this ice cream parlor near Sheldon Road and Ann Arbor Road in Canton to visit her best friend who worked there. The girls made plans to meet later that day at Haggerty Field in Hines Park. This part of Hines Park is in the city of Plymouth, Michigan. Uh, this is actually one of the oldest communities in Michigan, having been settled in 1825 and incorporated as a city in 1867. Plymouth is known as a very quiet and peaceful community. Plymouth sits on the edge of Hines Drive. Uh, Hines Drive is a 17-mile stretch that ran, runs from Dearborn to Northville. It's a very, very long road. It runs along the path of the Rouge River, and along the drive are many parks, baseball fields, and scenic lookouts. It's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of land. It's There's a lot. Um, it's actually going to come up. Heinz Drive will be mentioned again in next week's case as well because it's it is definitely a point of focus there. Um, so Kim's friend arrived at the park, but Kim never showed. According to the Charlie Project, Kim's disappearance wasn't reported to police for several days, and her mother refused to cooperate with the investigation. That big time bothers me. Like, what? That... I really, um, I don't understand that. I, I will say, from what I've read, Kim's loved ones describe her as a rebellious teen who used drugs frequently and ran away often. Um, but they stated at that time, since she moved in with her mother, there were no major issues in her life. So, uh, I, I don't know. You know, maybe she did just run away. I don't know. Uh, much of her family lived in Ida, Michigan, about 45 minutes from Canton, and she often spent weekends there with her aunt. But according to the family in Ida, nobody had seen her. At the time of Kim's disappearance in 1981, Arthur Ream would have been 30 years old. And that brings us to 17-year-old Kelly Marie Brownlee. She was last seen May 20th, 1982 in Novi, Michigan. This one is a little bit of a wild ride. 
in May of 1982, Kelly was staying at the home of her boyfriend, Mark, and his family in Wald Lake, Michigan. Remember, she was 17. She moved out of her family's home in West Bloomfield after she admitted to some of her friends that her stepfather had been abusing her. Her friends have stated that prior to Kelly's disappearance, they did see bruises on her body. Her stepfather pleaded guilty to fourth-degree criminal sexual misconduct in 1977 when Kelly's older sister filed charges against her, against him, sorry. Her sister then moved to California where her biological father lived. Kelly remained in Michigan with her mother and stepfather. She had a good relationship with her mother, but she moved out of the house after her stepfather turned his attention towards her. Yeah. This one, like I said, this one, this one's rough. Um, I, I really have to interject my personal feelings here for a second. How on God's green earth did a woman, a mother, allow the man who pleaded guilty to sexually abusing her older daughter remain in the same house as her younger daughter? And, oh, it gets worse. It gets worse. In 1982, Kelly had moved in with her boyfriend's family, but I'm but as I mentioned, her mother states that Kelly was planning on moving. Kelly was planning on moving back into her home once Paul moved out. Hold on to your hats, folks. Because Kelly's mom did not divorce that SOB until 1985. That is three years. If you could see what I wrote here, it's literally in all caps, three years after Kelly's disappearance. Like what? Pardon my language. What the fuck? Seriously. I'm just like, how stupid. How unbelievably ignorant. This man pleaded guilty to sexually abusing your daughter. And you remain with him that long. Okay, I'm sorry. Back to Kelly's disappearance. Oh, Kelly and Mark, her boyfriend, took the bus to school together on May 20th, 1982. However, Kelly skipped her classes that day to hitchhike to 12 Oaks Mall in Novi, which is about four miles away from her school. As I mentioned, that time, you know, back in the 70s, early 80s, it was quite normal for kids to hitchhike to get around. She wanted to get a job. So um, she went to the mall. It wasn't like she was shopping. She was actually trying to find a job. She collected applications and applied for several jobs at several stores. One of her friend's mothers saw her at the mall and offered her a ride, but Kelly said no. She wanted to submit more applications. This was the last confirmed sighting of Kelly Brownlee. When Kelly did not return home or call by 9 p.m., Mark actually reported her missing. A search for Kelly came together pretty quickly, but little evidence was found. 
As always, the significant other is looked at, and Mark was, but he was ruled out as a suspect very early in the investigation. And then they started to look at Kelly's stepfather. He claimed to have been visiting his father-in-law's grave and going to the gym the afternoon Kelly disappeared, but he also denied abusing her in any way, so we know how much he can be trusted. He agreed to a police interview in July, two months after Kelly vanished, and he again stated he was innocent. At that point, he retained a lawyer and refused a polygraph. Hmm, interesting. Um, honestly, how my issue here, though, is how would she skip school? She did not. This was not a planned uh, trip. How would he have known that she was even at the mall and it's, like I said, it's not like they had tracking on their phones in 1982. So um, the only thing that I could possibly think of, and I don't know if this was ever looked at, but potentially, I guess the friend that offered her a ride could have maybe called our Kelly's mom's house and the father found, the stepfather found out that, that way. I... Really, I think that would be the only way to possibly let him know where she was. I don't know. That one, I don't know if that point has ever been looked at. I did not find anything about that. That's the only thing that could potentially come to my mind that would lead him to know where she was. So, um, even to this day, her stepfather continues to maintain his innocence and say that he is not connected to Kelly's disappearance. And he actually, which I find hilarious, he actually occasionally hands over what he considers to be leads to authorities. Um, these authorities have uh, asked to re-interview him and he still continues to refuse. Father of the year. <laughs> Um, at the time of Kelly's disappearance in 1982, uh, Arthur Ream would have been 31 years old. And as you know, um, from part one, uh, Arthur Ream killed Cindy Zarzicki in 1986, and he would have been 35 at that time. Uh, now you're probably wondering how any of these cases might be connected. Uh, with, the with the exception of Kim King's, the location definitely adds, you know, that the fact that she went disappe disappeared from Warren definitely adds more of a possibility there. I cannot find any record of these cases being mentioned together prior to 2018. They were always considered completely separate cases. So I am going to have to ask, I'm not ask. Sorry, I'm going to have to act on the assumption that whatever was found during the 2018 raid at the warehouse, that they found something there that's going to bring these cases together. Because honestly, let's think about this. What would Warren and Novi, Warren and Canton, East Point and Inkster, they're nowhere near each other. They're far apart. Like I said, I, I get the Zarzicki case and the King case. Those easily connected, very similar circumstances, locations match. But the other ones are so far out in left field. So for the police commissioner to say that he believes there's no 
question that the northern Macomb County location is where the girls are buried tells me that they found something. Now, <laughs> you're going to love this one. This, I'm sorry, Arthur Ream is seriously like, let, let's put aside the fact that he's a murderer. Okay, put it aside. This guy is such a douchebag. It's laughable. Like, he's so, such a freaking asshole. Oh, and you're not going to believe this. He actually, I'm going to try to read this without laughing because it's freaking hilarious that he had the audacity to utter these words. <laughs> so, in regards to the missing girls, Reem gave a phone interview to the Detroit Free Press from prison in 2018. These are quotes. I'm going to I'm going to tell you guys where the quotes are because you're going to trip. It's crazy. Quotes. I've never had anything to do with any of them. There's absolutely no connection between me and them at all. Unquote. Reem Reem also believes that the Warren police chief back in 2018 owes multiple apologies. Quote, he owes them, meaning the families of the missing girls, a big apology for getting their hopes up in this case. He owes Cindy Zarzicki's family a big apology for bringing up bad memories, and he owes me an apology for just getting me dragged into this. Unquote. What? Seriously, I'm telling you, this guy, oh my God, like, what did I just read? He owes the Warren commissioner, owes Cindy Zarzicki's family a big apology for bringing up bad memories. Oh my God, you killed her and buried this baby. She was 13. You buried her in the ground, but he owes you an apology? Or he owes... What? I, I digress. Okay, but I think it's pretty safe to say that that apology is never going to happen. Oh, As of today, I have not heard of any other searches that have happened. Um... As I mentioned before, I've reached out to the Warren Police Commissioner to see if any more searches are planned in the future, but I have not heard back. If I do hear from him, um, I fully intend, if, if he does tell me that there's a search planned, I fully intend to ask if I can volunteer because I, uh, I think a big part of the issue is they need more bodies. They need more people out there. Uh why, while police do feel they have enough evidence to confidently, confidently say the girls are buried in that field, let's just remember that until they are found, nothing is for certain. So if you know anything at all about any of the missing girls that we have covered today, please contact me by private messenger on the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page or contact the Warren police. While Kimberly King is the only one missing from Warren, they appear to be the most active department in the search for answers. Uh, at that, with that, uh, this concludes our two-part special on the despicable Arthur Ream and his victims, or I'm sorry, potential victims. 
I would like to say thank you to the families and friends of the girls for keeping their memories alive by telling their stories. Thank you to the multiple police departments, the FBI, and the volunteers for the countless hours spent trying to locate the girls. And to all of Reem's victims that have survived him, and we do suspect that there were quite a few, I thank you for being such a warrior. To all the local Metro Detroit news stations and the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News, thank you for keeping up the story of the girls out there so that we never stop looking. And again, thank you to the uh, Already Gone podcast for covering Kim King's case. Um, and most importantly, to Cindy Zarzicki, Cindy Kuhn, Nadine O'Dell, Kimberly King, Kimberly Laro, and Kelly Brownlee. Please know that you are not forgotten and never will be. Until next time, this has been Michigan Unsolved.